Will you stand with me as we look again at the final verses of Matthew 28, these verses that encapsulate all that Jesus taught in the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension during which he taught them about the kingdom of heaven. So his teaching about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is by the Holy Spirit inspiration through the writing of Matthew, boiled down, distilled to this. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit will accompany the word of God this morning. May it guide my lips and our hearts together in the paths of conviction and truth. By the power of the Spirit, Father, be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You understand that in what we just did as a congregation by baptizing our children, we in act and in word actually fulfilled this commission. Not the ultimate fulfillment of it, but a very real fulfillment in our baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and in our promising to raise up our children to honor God. This, this commission that Jesus left us applies first to our homes and then to our church and then to our communities and then to the world, wherever we go. In our going, we are to do this, Jesus says. Therefore, because I have all authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus says, go make disciples. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This commission and what it requires of us is, is one of the great, great challenges of our lives. It's a challenge to us in our homes. It's a challenge to us in our communities. It's a challenge to us in the world. And few things are more necessary for our lives and our church than a wholehearted, obedient return to this commission that Christ gave to his disciples upon his departure for heaven. The full authority of Christ, and to Christ belongs all authority in heaven and on earth, stands behind this commission. It is thus a command and order from Almighty God. It carries authority. In itself, it's a departing command from Christ to his disciples. And when it's fulfilled and when we operate in accord with Christ's command, it carries, it is conducted and completed by the same authority by which the command is issued. So the command comes with authority and it carries authority to those who seek to fulfill it. The authority of Christ inhabits the person the follower, the disciple, 
who faithfully follows the command. Yet, though that authority is found in our lives when we seek to obey this command, that authority remains our master's authority. We do not become the authority. We remain unworthy slaves serving a great master. It is not our authority and it is not our power. It is our obedience that has authority and power. As an obedient slave wielding the authority of a master, acting in accord with his master's will, has power and authority, this command faithfully followed grants us the approval of our heavenly master, Jesus Christ, and it empowers our lives and our service with his authority. Now, it would be obvious to any outsider reading the Bible for the first time Someone naive to the truths of Scripture and coming upon them and reading them for the very first time and comparing the story of the lives of the apostles in the book of Acts, their deeds, their works, their successes, with what is seen of the work of the church in the world today, in America, around the world, it would be obvious that in the church of the New Testament that follows these instructions by Christ, the church that is described in the book of Acts, whose works are, are described in the book of Acts and whose character is described in the epistles to those churches, it would be clear that there was a tremendous authority and power in that early church, that this, this commission did indeed carry authority. It would be obvious to a naive reader that there is some kind of authority. And if that naive reader of scripture also had some knowledge of the church in America today from a distance looking at it I think it would be equally clear to that that reader that the power that is defined described and carried in the word of God the power of that early church is is not present in the church today the power and authority of Christ that are evident in the Bible especially in the book of Acts, is missing, at least in American Christianity, and I would suspect in many churches around the world. And it's not that Christians around the world, and especially in America today, don't go through the motions of this commission or pay lip service to the commission. They do. But the hollowness of our obedience is laid bare by the lack of our power in fulfilling this commission. I don't think it's unfair to say that there's almost no comparison between the authority of the early apostles and the early church and the early Christians that's portrayed in the book of Acts and the power and authority of those who claim the name of Jesus Christ today. Something's been lost. Something is missing. The evidence of this is the lack of effect, the lack of transformation, the lack of new life, the lack of fruit in the world as a result of Christians living out the Great Commission today. In the last year, I've given many of you copies of a, a book that I think has come to mean the most to me in my years as a pastor, The Life of George Whitfield by Arnold Dalimore, a two-volume book. I first read it 30-some years ago, probably 33, 34 years ago, and I was amazed. I remember sitting in the parsonage at the time by the front window and just reading this book and going, I can't believe it. <laughs> 
I can't believe what God did through that man, who some of you have probably never heard of, George Whitfield, the great evangelist of the Great Awakening, who went through England and America preaching, it's estimated 30 to 50,000 times in his 30 years of public ministry to millions upon millions of people, attracting crowds wherever he went that were time after time the largest crowds ever gathered in the city until that date. When he preached in North America, as he did a number of times, took a number of trips to North America, it was routine for him to have a crowd at his preaching, which was always out of doors because no building could accommodate the crowds. It was routine for the crowds to be as big as the entire population of the city he preached in. At the time, I think it was something like 12,000 people lived in Philadelphia, the capital of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, but they estimated, Benjamin Franklin estimated that there were 14 to 15,000 people listening to George Whitfield as he preached out of doors. Everyone came to hear him and the world was transformed. The work that Whitfield did and the preaching and the work that the pastors did that were around where he preached, Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, people across England, the Wesleys. We are heirs of the fruit of it. American, in America's Christian heritage is really a product of that era even more than the Puritan era. The, the fact that England did not go down the path of the Enlightenment and the, the revolution that gripped France in those years shortly after Whitfield is attributed by, by secular historians to the Great Awakening, to the work that was done by men and women but especially by that great preacher, George Whitfield, who went and preached and people came to know the Lord. So reading that book convinced me that it's not just in the book of Acts that the church has had power. I think, I hope you understand this. That however much people might say to you, oh, that was Acts, that was then, this is now. I'm, I'm not going to go into whether the miracles that took place in Acts are intended for all time. Personally, I think God gave them as a special outflow of the Holy Spirit for the early church's benefit to establish the work as a sign of the authority that the apostles had. And I don't think they continue in the same way. But regardless of your view of that question, we all, as Christians, should agree that God intends for there to be a glorious power in the church and in our lives that transforms the world. That there have been days when that power has been at work and that this is not such a day. It just is not. The power of God is undiminished, but it is the power of our witness to the authority of Christ to the glory of Jesus. It is the power of our ability to convince others of the truth of the gospel that seems to be lacking. Jesus did everything he did with authority. There was authority in his every word and teaching and people marveled at it. And that authority was carried by the apostles when they went out. The early church was established by authority. There was authority, there was power. There were consequences. It was not worldly authority. It didn't carry a gun or a sword. It didn't do anything like that. It didn't seek to rule from the Senate or from the Sanhedrin or from the 
the Senate in, in Rome, it didn't seek that kind of a power. It had a greater power. It changed lives. It caused people to come to know Jesus and to worship him. An immense power. And yet, despite being born again personally, we somehow are lacking that public authority, that visible power of the kingdom of God that should always accompany the life of a Christian in the preaching of God's word. Let me say that despite the authority Jesus proclaims here in telling us to make disciples of all nations being his power and not ours, despite our being terribly proud and mistaken if we think we can take that power as our own and wield it as though it were our tool, and despite the tendency that exists in all of us to think we are greater than mere slaves, that we are something a little more exalted than what Jesus describes us as, mere slaves doing the will of a great master. Despite all these tendencies in us, despite these these paths that we're inclined to go down, despite our tendency to want to control and be sovereign ourselves by virtue of the power of God, Despite there being a great deal of that, that magician, Simon Magus, who saw the power of God in the apostles and said, I want to buy it. Give me it. Pay, I'll pay you for that power. Despite there being a whole lot of Simon Magus in you and me, wanting the power of God for our purposes rather than for God's purposes, The truth is and remains that a faithful servant has authority. The faithful servant has the power of his master. The faithful ambassador carries the authority of his king. And the humble believing Christian has the full power of God in his life by virtue of being given the Holy Spirit. And there is great reason to think that this power should conquer our world. Great reason to hope that the Jesus who saved us really does intend us to win the world to him. Great reason for hope of a turning to Jesus by many. Great reason for hope in the Bible for a great winning of the lost, a great triumph of the Mount of God, Mount Zion, in the midst of all the lesser mountains of the world. Chief among the mountains, the Bible says, is Mount Zion, the city of our great king. In recent weeks, I've emphasized the danger of claiming and thinking we can manipulate the power of Christ as though it's our own possession. The danger of embracing a triumphalist form of Christianity that thinks it runs on the rails of worldly success powered by the locomotives of human authority and worldly influence. Yet despite that real danger, there is power in the Christian life, authority in the Holy Spirit's presence in your life if you are a believer.
Who can read the words of Isaiah and not have his or her mind kind of run riot with the implications of what Isaiah writes in the Old Testament? He writes, now it will come about that in the last days, this is the words of Isaiah, in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations. All nations, Jesus says. Make disciples of all nations. Isaiah says, and all nations will stream to Zion. Many peoples will come and say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways. What is the call of Jesus? Teach, teach them my ways. Then we may walk in his paths, for the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Never again will they learn war. Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is what the Bible says we should look forward to. And this is going to be done by the followers of Jesus. It's going to be accomplished by people like you and me and our children. This is our hope. God intends for his bride, the church, to triumph. But that triumph comes as we walk in the light of the Lord. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. It comes only to a people who are committed to the glory of their Savior, not to their own. It comes to the humble and obedient servants of Christ who heed him and glorify him and who acknowledge that any light and any glory is his and that we are mere slaves of a great and wonderful master who has given his life for us and now calls us to go into the world with his authority and by his light and to claim others. Look, this whole command is resonant with authority. Jesus says, make disciples. The verb is important. It's not win disciples. It's not convince disciples. It's make disciples. You know, like make a soldier out of your son. Make this, make that. You're not to go and in an iffy, wishy-washy way say, would you like to? You have an authority to make disciples. She says, go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, wherever you go, this command applies. Wherever you go, this power is with you. It is not located in Jerusalem, or it's not located in Rome, or it's not located in Toledo. Wherever you go, the power is yours. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Baptism is a sign, just as circumcision, of our belonging. It's, it's a divine form of a brand on a body. Uh, you brand your cow, you brand, brand your sheep, you, you, you tag their ear, you do whatever as a sign that you own, that you are the owner and that that belongs to you. And this is baptism. Baptism is God's sign on you 
So that when you're, wherever you go, wherever you are out in the world, wherever you go with his authority, people know, oh, that one belongs to God. It is a statement of belonging. It's a statement of your being under authority. Go make all people and all nations disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Use the triune God's power. Speak his name over the world. Call the world. Make them disciples of this. It's authority. So why do we lack the power? I want to conclude with three reasons that I think we lack power. And three things that we, you, our children, must not give in to. Because God has a great command and a great commission and a great glorious future for you. We're not building this church for our generations. We're building it for the whole world. So, to our children, I say three things. To all of us, but especially to our young men and women. Your parents, me, the leadership, we who are above you in age have made the mistake of thinking that authority that we have is attractional rather than absolute. I had a a brother, not literally my brother, but as close as a brother, who was a man of, he was a very successful attorney. And he married a woman who was a very difficult woman. My brother had been a, an officer on a naval ship during Vietnam. He continued on after becoming an attorney in the Judge Advocate Corps, whatever that is, I think it's, that's the name of it. Judge Advocate rose to the level of captain in the Naval Reserves. He was a man who you paid respect to. He was a respect-worthy man. And, and he had this marriage. It was not a happy marriage. And at times, he'd unburden himself. I remember one Christmas, standing by a frozen lake as the kids were ice skating, and him talking about how much of his income his wife had spent on clothes the last year. It was like $100,000. And, uh, and I felt for him. And he made his wife breakfast in bed every day. Every day. I didn't realize it wasn't just on vacations when they were with us, but when I was visiting them once in their house, I realized he did it every day of his life. Made her breakfast in bed. I've told this story before. I asked him, why do you make her breakfast in bed all year? He said, well, I've learned that if I make her breakfast in bed, she is happier and it makes it an easier day for all of us. He says, I don't like doing it, but I do it for that reason. And then 21, 22 years ago, my brother left his wife for an old high school girlfriend. She'd never changed. She was still the woman she'd been 20 years before. I think she did change before her death a year ago. God really worked in her. My brother, he went off. He went off. 
into a far country and never came back. As I considered what he'd done, it struck me that he had been a leader in the Navy. He'd commanded men. He knew what it was to lead people. But when it came to his home, he wasn't willing to risk anything. He wanted to be liked. And he wouldn't change a thing. And in fact, he ran out on his home as a coward because he would not lead. Young men and women, you can't lead and have authority and be universally loved. Jesus wasn't universally loved. Paul wasn't universally loved. If you read the book of Acts, it's the story of Paul being nearly killed in city after city. But your authority is not based on people liking you. You need to remember, this is number two, you are not, your authority is not attractional. It's not by your being nice and cute, looking like a cute son of this pretty woman, you know, and I go out into the world and I'm cute and the girls like me. I'm doing this for Jesus. You know this, this idea, this approach. I'm a good looking guy. You know, I'm hip. I'm doing it for Jesus. It's not the way it works. Jesus doesn't need you cute. He doesn't need you hip. He needs you to love him. All the church needs to triumph over the world is for Christians to love Jesus. And with that love for a great savior, they go from having an attractional authority to an absolute authority, his authority. Not what they can muster up like Absalom. Aren't I nice? Aren't I nice? Won't you let me tell you what to do? Aren't I nice? Aren't I nice? Won't you listen to me? but at the absolute authority of Jesus, the Paul, who go and speak. Now, I said, if you're going to turn away from an attractional form of authority to an absolute, you're going to have to recognize this about the world around you. Your parents have given into the language that is really an evil language of description of the church. And it began as our language about 50 years ago, but I think that the seeds that went into this change in language stem well before 50 years ago. And even in our church, which doesn't use this language, the idea persists. So I'm using this language, but the idea is that we as Christians are going out in the church to seekers. Have you heard the word seekers? You know the term? That the world is filled with seekers, right? And that our job is to go and bring the seekers in. This idea is utterly destructive of authority and power. Because it makes you think that everyone out there is actually a pretty good person just wanting, and if you can just present it in the right light, they're going to grab because they are wanting things. But what's the Bible say? The Bible says every man is an enemy of God. That their hearts are hard. That they hate. There's no seeker out there. God is the seeker. Man is the rebeller. Stop thinking of the world as seeking that you can just maybe inch them along with, within the seeking process by your being nice. 
and start thinking of them as God describes them as rebels who need to hear his word, who need you to love Jesus enough that you speak to them with authority rather than trying to present yourself as nice so that they're wooed attractionally. The world is not filled with seekers. The lost are not seeking. That's not to say that God has not started a process in some of the lost that's bringing them. But what I'm saying to you is that if you're going to win the world, you're going to have to use authority and not winsomeness. Your winsomeness, you're being cute, you're being nice, you're being a really lovely woman or a lovely guy in the eyes of the lost does not equate to worshiping Jesus. Because Jesus has a hard message, which is that you are going to hell if you don't turn to him. The Bible is full of Jesus talking about hell and damnation. And these are not winsome messages. Third, we have to be convinced we lack power because we have substituted a worldly form of attractiveness for the glory of Jesus and his authority. I really don't think it's possible to be cool and to have authority. <laughs> you know? I understand it's a little bit of a risk to say something like this. And I could say it about a dozen different things, but I've noticed in the denomination that we were part of over my years there that the, the tattoos proliferated in the young pastors. And in one sense, I have nothing against tattoos, but it almost seemed like you had to have tattoos and they had to be multiplying to be a pastor in that denomination. And I came to the conclusion that the more the tattoos, usually the less the spiritual power. The authority of Christ is not a matter of showing off or being cool. It's a matter of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and us speaking with his power. And I don't say that you won't be winsome and you won't be loved if you have authority. Paul was loved. Paul was absolutely loved, but by a very distinct subset of mankind, those who'd come to know Jesus. And to those who come to hear about Jesus from you, you will be beautiful. The Bible says how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those that bring good news. And this is true. You carry the news of Jesus to people and they will love you. But don't go to be loved. Go to bring the truth. And you will be loved. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And for the way that it challenges us. And I pray, Father, that you will give our church and our lives the real authority of a slave serving a master. Not attractional, not based in us. But Father, entirely founded on the glory of your Son who gave himself for us and loves us. And in his name we pray, amen. amen.